All right. Welcome back to Patriot to the Core podcast. Uh, this is Thad Forrester, and I've got with me today for episode 92 or 93. I'm not sure which one this is going to be yet, but we'll get that figured out here real soon. I've got Breeder General Robert G. Armfield, also known as Gwen Armfield, and then Lieutenant General Bruce Fister. I both are retired. So thank you, gentlemen, very much for, for being with me today to talk about your book. I'm very curious, Bruce, what brought you two together to even write this book? Originally, this started because Gwen was a wing commander. He asked me to come over and speak to people in his wing about leadership. And I did. And then as things went on, I had a book out and then I, I rewrote it. The name of the book is Growing and Building Faith, Prayer and Leadership Revised for You, the Leader. And Gwen was a contributor in that. In fact, he had many of the good ideas for how it should be laid out and so forth. And we got done with that. And we said, we ought to write our own book on leadership. So here we are. The book I told you all before, it's simple. It's straightforward to the point. I love how it's laid out. It's very easy to read. You said you had that, I don't know, the layout in your head for a long time. Why did you lay it out the way you did? Gwen, do you mind? Yeah, well, Dad, first, thanks for having us. Uh, it's an honor to be back on the podcast with you. I, I enjoyed the, uh, the one we did a couple of years ago. So um, the book title is Lead to Serve and Serve to Lead, Leading Well in Turbulent Times. And uh, that was, uh, I think I, I picked the main title out and then Bruce picked out the Leading Well in Turbulent Times. And, uh, you know, we wrote this starting about 18 months ago. And, you know, it was COVID and it was all this, you know, all this stuff's going on. And everybody's in, in the virtual workplace. And so uh, we're like, hey, this is going to last for a while. You know, just all the uncertainty of the world right now. So we really need to help equip leaders of character that are going to be able to lead organizations, whether it's military, you know, private sector or ministry or something else, nonprofits. You know, there, there's common attributes to leading in all those. And so we, uh, you know, thought through, okay, hey, what are the simple answers here? What are the simple things to discuss? You know, character, communications. Uh, and then we develop it on some a little more advanced topics as the book goes on. But we spent a lot of time on the developmental piece of this on kind of what not to say and cut all that out and then focus on what we want to say. And the idea was, um, I think, the genesis of the book that you know, we thought through the audience and the audience is people who find themselves in leadership positions that may be technical experts or whatever, but they've never been prepared to succeed as leaders. They were prepared to succeed as a CPA or an engineer, but now they're leading leading others. And, you know, Bruce and I had a lot of uh, benefit of the military preparing us to lead. And sometimes you, you, get jumped, you get dropped into it, other times you get prepared for it. But as we um, worked with folks in the private sector and the nonprofit sector, a lot of them had no leadership background at all. So the book's really written for folks like that. How does your leadership and your experience in the military Bruce, how does that really apply? How did you make it apply to uh, the private sector and nonprofit? Because you also you've also spoken to group, many groups, and yeah, that you will continue to do so. So, how does that leadership experience translate? It's actually very trans transposable in the sense that the basics are the same. If you're going to lead, you need to create vision. If you're going to lead, you need to build a team or figure out how to work with a team that you have. If you're going to lead, you're going to have to be willing to delegate and give other people responsibility and, and not be afraid of an occasional failure that comes along, which which they will, because that's the way life is. So um, that happens all the time in the military. When I first became a squadron commander, I didn't have any training. They just said, you're a squadron commander, so off I go. And I'm flying airplanes all over the world. <laughs> Okay, I had no idea what to do other than to uh, inspire a vision amongst the squadron. And so uh, Gwen, you know, since he's behind me, the Air Force kind of got a little bit smart about that and, and instituted some pretty good leadership programs for people coming along uh, to prepare them. Then one of the things I'd, I'd say is that the the successful leaders, whether they're private sector, military, whatever, they had great mentors. And we talked about that before we got started today. But if you look back and say, you know, if you're a, when you come into the military, you're as, as an officer, you're a, you're a lieutenant or in the Navy, you're an ensign. 
the those that had really good commanders that, that invested in them and taught them how to do things, how to lead, how to you know how to present themselves, how to be uh, a small unit leader. Those folks tended to grow up and do well, and they stuck around. Uh, if folks came in and they had a bad first experience, in some cases, a lot of those you know move on to find other callings because they didn't really they they were never shown the way to be successful and. Although the Air Force and the military has a lot of leader development uh, formalized activities, I think the real learning happens from, you know, the folks that are immediately responsible for you. And if they invest in you, you tend to do well. Um, conversely, you also learn a lot from bad leaders. Uh, you know, I, I had a mis-experience in, in, my, in my situation. My first boss was, um, was not real hot. Matter of fact, I think he fired me for about 15 minutes when I first got there. I'm not sure how that happened, but... Um, I really didn't want to be him when I grew up. And then the the gentleman who replaced him was awesome. You know, he took time to get to know us. He mentored us. He showed us kind of how, why things are done. And um, a lot of those folks went on to do pretty well, you know, because of those uh, next level up leaders who invested in us. And, and I think the combination of the formal and informal sets you up and sets conditions for you to be successful as you move forward. Yeah, I was very fortunate that he has some good leaders for whom I worked. A couple of names come to bear, uh, General Dwayne Cassidy. I was a wing commander under him and he, he came to see me a lot in Germany because <laughs> his uh, son was in one of my squadrons and they had children. And of course, grandma and grandpa had to come visit, but that, that was a good thing. He was a, he was a really good guy to kind of, you know, craft your style of leadership around. Another guy was, uh, a retired Army Lieutenant General, his name is Sam Wilson. He's since passed, both of them have passed away at this point. But Sam was one of the original Merle's Marauders in World War II, working behind Japanese lines. And he had immense amounts of wisdom. And he did some really terrific things to help me along in areas uh, that I was working in at the time. So I, I kind of lucked out. Uh, I don't remember ever working for a, a boss that I considered just not up for the task or abrasive or anything like that. But I, I will tell you one thing I always did. I always went by the axiom that uh, bad news never gets better with age. And so when something jumped track, and they did, <laughs> I picked up the phone and said, this is going down and it ain't going to look good. And I was on the international stage and because I was a wing commander in Germany. Let's go into that. So you, you kind of started talking about developing leaders, which is chapter eight. And one of the this is one of the chapters that I know was was one of my favorites or one that stood out to me when I read the book. You have a quote in here. It says good judgment comes through experience, which comes from bad judgment. <laughs> I guess you just hope the bad judgment judgment isn't too bad. Yeah, I think, you know, you learn as you get uh, more senior that there's folks who did the wrong thing, but their intent was good. And uh, they were trying to get after the mission and, you know, something, something didn't work out right, but they were legal, they were moral, they were ethical in what they were trying to do. They just probably went about it the wrong way. And uh, so I, I'll give you, I'm a prime example of this because I probably should have been, you know, fired many times, but, you know, all for usually trying to do the right thing. And uh, I, I had an event where um, we were trying to get the mission done and uh, I made some bad decisions as a young team leader in putting somebody, uh, you know, responsible for doing something that wasn't trained to do it. And uh, they had an accident. Nobody was uh, seriously injured. And, you know, uh, I got back to the unit and the commander's waiting on me. And he's like, what happened? So I told him and he's like, well, you know, what, what did your uh, non-commissioned officer tell you? And I'm like, well, he had left. Like I was the only one there when I made the decision to do this, you know. And so he had nothing to do with it. And I was like, hey, sir, it's all my fault. You know, here's what I did wrong. Here's why I did it. Here's what I learned from it. I'll never do that again. And he, uh, you know, he could have really probably ended my career at that point. And he looked at me and goes, well, there's nothing I can do to you to reinforce the lesson you've already taught yourself. So we'll just call this good. Don't do it again. And don't ever put a young airman in that position again. And I'm like, yes, sir, I got it. And the grace and mercy he showed me uh, when he realized, hey, I had learned my lesson. 
And, and he showed me grace and mercy and I learned from it. And uh, one, I never did it again. And two, more importantly, I learned to show grace and mercy to people that did, you know, dumb things by trying to do the right thing. And, uh, and I tried to teach that to folks as I grew up. And we write about that in the book a little bit. But that's the um, the impetus behind the idea that we write about, that you got to let people make some mistakes and learn from it. And that's how they learn to grow and make good decisions. Yeah. As long as they're learning from it. Both Gwen and I have had some good mentors, but I think he would agree that the best mentors that any of us have had have been senior NCOs without, for me, without fail. And especially when I was in the special operations business, I wouldn't do anything without checking with the senior non-commissioned officer involved in, in, in whatever the operation was. They had a great way of kind of pushing me in the right direction. I, as I read the book, I kept the whole time I thought about me and how I can apply this, how maybe I have applied it. And so one thing I thought of, especially in this chapter, was most of the time in my career, I've never gone through some type of formal training not even much of a grace period. It's almost always just been, here you go. We need somebody in this position. We got work to do and you're off. And so there's been plenty of times where I haven't known what to do in certain situations, whether it was a procedure, whether it was where to find the process, you know, on the SharePoint, all, all kinds of questions, who to go to. Oftentimes I had to make decisions and sometimes they're wrong. Sometimes you just ask around, you, you, you find the right people, but what what is the best way? Because Bruce, you said earlier you were you were put in a situation, a leadership position years ago that where you didn't feel like you were prepared or you hadn't been trained, is what you said. I think is that the best way to get into a leadership position, or is it through a, a formal training process? Well, it probably wasn't the best way. But I live by another axiom: if you're dumb enough to give me the responsibility, I'm dumb enough to take it. So. I went in there and decided I'm going to make the best of it and uh, it turned out pretty good. I'd like to share, uh, talk about an experience in chapter chapter eight here, because that's one thing good that y'all both do is you talk about mistakes or failures. And I think people appreciate that because if you didn't talk about them, obviously we've all, we all have them and have had them. And uh, Bruce, for you, you said that, that uh, there was a simulation failure with an, M60, an MC-130 and an MH-60. Do you describe what happened there and and how you felt after it? Well, <laughs> I felt pretty bad after it. And let me let me take the end of this thing first. Uh, I had to stay uh, on the island of Guam two weeks after the rest of my team left uh, for an accident investigation, and I made the trip back to the United States in the back of a C one forty one. And this busted up helicopter was in the airplane with me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the way this thing went down is I was always aggressive. Uh, when it came with trying to deal with the enemy and, and really have a good element of surprise. And I had a great boss. His name was Carl Steiner. He was he was just terrific. And I I I had been listening to the reconnaissance people on the radio and they said, well, we don't see any opposition force on this runway. And I turned to General Steiner and I said, you know, they don't see anything. I think we ought to move this whole show up 15 minutes and get in there while they're getting this good. Well, a, a couple things happened. Number one, my floor mic switch got stuck in, in the on position. So I'm sitting there with my legs in the air while a airman technician is unscrewing the floorboards and trying to fix my mic. Uh, but then we didn't do a good job at all of communicating the fact that we're moving this whole thing up 15 minutes. And I think what actually happened is one of the units, actually it was the uh, Army Aviation Unit, they just didn't get the word. And they, they were at a place on the runway where I'm sure if, we wouldn't have changed the schedule. I'm sure they wouldn't have been there, but they were, and they didn't know we were really changing this thing. And but the MC 130s, they, those guys got the word. They put the throttles forward and then came in here and landed on top of them. 
And it was, and I'll tell you what, uh, I went back to the Joint Operations Center afterwards, and a real dear friend of mine, who was the commander of the Army Aviation Unit, came in and said, who's a dumb SOB that moved the HR up? And I just said, it was me. He's been a dear friend ever since then. And I just told him it was my fault. And there's not much else you can do about it, uh, except what I did do. I had a great influence over, over how exercises in the future were done. And so I helped design exercises where we were forced or we should have moved our time on the target up and we practiced that. And so however many years later in Panama, we had exactly that same situation. We had to move HR up by 15 minutes and we hit 27 targets all on time, all <laughs> at the HR that was uh, uh, moved forward and it, we had great success. So sometimes you have to fall down in the process to learn and gain experience and figure out how you're going to do better the next time. But yeah. the most important thing is to stand up and accept responsibility for the problem. Yeah, I agree with that. Gwen, should should you, the leader, know all of the jobs of all the people that report to you? And then at the same time, maybe it's a two-parter. I've been in many situations where something needs to get done. The person who reports to me maybe is not available or not there. And, you know, it's easy for me to say, Hey, I'm the leader. I'll do it. Do you think that's the right thing to do as a leader or to, or should you learn more to delegate? And then the other question of, do you need to know all the details of everything that the, that your people do? That's a great uh, question, Thad. And I think, you know, it, it depends, right? If we, um, you know, the, the book, uh, we start off with character in chapter one, and then we talk, you know, about how to communicate. And then chapter six gets into uh, effectively communicating so that you create trust, you know, up, down, and laterally within the organization. And that enables people to kind of have this bias for action and operate without you having to tell them everything to do. So as we develop the book, we, um, you know, we kind of go with character and the communication and then talking about how to uh, build trust by um by communicating effectively and then like i think much my, my favorite chapter in the book is chapter seven uh is i've consulted with um private sector companies since i retired the the the, the skill that i see uh, leaders lacking uh kind of across the board is the ability to delegate effectively like you're talking about do i need to know everything and be able to do everything all the time you know the answer of course is no because when you get to higher levels of responsibility, there's no way you can do that. I think that uh, it really helps if you have some level of technical competence in, in certain areas, but uh, the ability to trust your subordinates, you know, trust your teammates to be able to do their job uh, and then be able to give them the good guidance in order to go be effective is the real key skill. You know, what problem are we solving? Why do I need you to solve it? And, you know, what do I need you to do and when? But then we leave the how to the individual expert on, on how to execute their their task. And so as we, uh, you know, as you talk to big groups of folks, you know, you got to if is it, I'm talking to five people on a team I work with every day or am I talking to 500? So it, the level of fidelity I'll go to depends on what the situation is. But, you know, as, as Bruce and I say in Lead to Serve, uh, the idea here is to make other people responsible for the problem. You know, so they feel like they own the uh, responsibility for getting things done. So if you're reaching in all the time, trying to tell them how to do things, it's really in their job jar. You're probably overreaching. Uh, you got to keep an eye on things. You are responsible for everything that happens. Uh, you can delegate your authority to go do things, but you can't delegate the responsibility for overall success. So uh, I, I think I'm probably more inclined to uh, to trust the people to do the job. Uh set conditions for them to be successful, uh, make sure they know when they run into a roadblock, when they come back and talk to me. And then, you know, we'll do the right level of uh, oversight on that. But if we've got the right people on the team, uh, they're going to go out and execute the mission. Um, and we write, we write in another chapter about hiring the athlete, you know, and training for skill or, you know, hire for attitude and train for skill. And in a lot of cases, you can do that. Not always, but 
I think it's the attitude of having a bias for action and uh, understanding what it is we're trying to accomplish and why. And people will go out and make it happen for you without you having to be there telling them all the specifics of what to do. Uh, if you find yourself in that situation, you may have hired the wrong people. When I was a, younger in the Air Force, I, had a mess, I got this message from some senior leaders that basically said, you need to do everything. You should be able to do everything that your subordinates do. And I said, you know, that's one of the dumbest ideas I ever heard of. <laughs> There's no way you can do everybody's job. You should be familiar with what they're doing and what the challenges and constraints are that don't talk your in, yourself into thinking you can do everything that every person on your team does. It just doesn't happen that way. All right. I wanted to move to chapter nine, leading in a crisis. This was my favorite chapter. And I got it. There's a quote here. You've got your reaction to bad news will set the tone for how your team responds. hundred percent agree with this. And you, how you say that following a crisis, people will not remember how the crisis was resolved, but how you reacted to and managed the crisis. I wanted to talk about your experience first, Bruce. One of the ones that you shared, you compared there were the the similarities, or you, I don't know if you compared them all. You just said there were similarities in the Afghanistan withdrawal that we just had recently, really, versus the Vietnam withdrawal nearly 50 years earlier. Will you, can you uh, share the warnings there and, and the similarities? Yes. Uh, first of all, both of them were bad. Uh, Afghanistan withdrawal occurred without any planning in a very short period of time. The uh, exit out of Vietnam occurred over a two-year period. But at the end of the day, uh, we got the same result. And the last people out of Dodge are the ones that are really hanging on to the skids of the helicopter with one hand. But Afghanistan, from my view, and Gwen can tell you a little bit more about this because he had time in Afghanistan, lots of it, and I didn't have that experience. But it just seemed like we're going to get out of there. And what happened is what you'd expect to happen. You've withdrawn all the support you're giving in terms of logistics and air power for the Afghan uh, nationals. In the case of Vietnam, it happened over two years. Uh, but the same thing, in 1973, Congress said, you cannot provide any more logistics or air support for the South Vietnam Vietnamese. And the South Vietnamese did a pretty good job of fighting these guys from the North. But after two years, they, they couldn't hang on anymore because uh, armor and artillery and all kind of heavy stuff was being moved at them and they didn't have any air support. I mean, they had their own air force, which uh, didn't really amount to a whole lot, some A1Es and uh, uh, A37s. And what they needed is stuff that could go in there and really bust up the enemy. Uh, very well, along with the intelligence and so forth. So the outcome was the same. Uh, Vietnam just took longer. And it, the last days of that uh, were just as tragic because you had people at the very end getting pulled off the embassy in Saigon to head out to the, to the ships. And in the process of that whole thing, uh, we had a C-5 full of babies crash after takeoff from Tonsonut. I was in the uh, military Elf command command center when that happened. I mean, that was a huge tragedy, but you gotta manage an exit if you're gonna do that. Uh, and in the Air Force and the Army and Navy had no say in that evacuation from Vietnam. It was a dictate by Congress. And so it happened. <clears throat> Now, in the case of Afghanistan, I have no idea why there was not a plan for a reasonable evacuation, a reasonable plan to get out of Afghanistan. It could have happened over a six-month period if uh, it would have been planned properly, but that never happened. And Gwen, you know about that a lot more than I do, uh, and you, you can elaborate on it a little bit more, I think. 
Yeah, so that the context of this is a leader having the ability to have indications and warnings a crisis is coming. That, that, that's why we write about this in the book is that you got to have the ability to look at things and kind of go, hey, I think this may occur. Uh, of course, this is my own personal opinion. This, like, we, we're not on active duty anymore. We're both retired. So it's just our personal opinion here. But, um, you know, just I, I think that um, without commenting on, you know, because I don't know, I was I was retired last year when this all happened. But, you know, just um, sad and tragic that um, we left behind some really strong teammates who had we, we had fought and um, um, many of whom had uh, we, we lost a, a lot of um, really great folks there in Afghanistan, Afghans who were fighting for their national uh, sovereignty and success. There, there's a whole lot to the story, but um, it, it would have been um, it would have been, I think, a better ending if we'd been able to get some of our folks out that <clears throat> had been longtime teammates with us. So um we uh, we did get some out. You know, a lot of us were involved in in, in getting folks out there in the last few uh, last few weeks and last few days as things went down. But we uh, we you know we bring this up in our book, our leadership book on crisis leadership, because there's crises that you um, predict, uh, you should predict, and this is one that, that should have been predicted. But uh, you know, there's other crises that you don't predict, and they just happen. And we give uh, you know a couple of examples of those as well. Um, you know, and, and you're in the case that with you, with uh, with your brother's um, death in combat, you know, we had a we certainly didn't predict that. but We had a process in place. We had a, um, a way to handle those things. Uh, we had a notification process we follow. And, uh, and we talk about that in the chapter um, about being prepared and exercising. Uh, for those events. And I think that's something to take away from this is that, you know, as a leader, you got to prepare your organization to respond to crisis. And um, in the case of the U.S. military with Afghanistan, you know, the um, the folks that, that were that went in on the ground at Kabul airport, um, I, I know many of them. Uh, I spoke with them right after they got back to the U.S. Like within a couple of days, I had a chance to sit down and talk to them. Um, about how things went there, and they were they were heroic. I mean, absolutely heroic operations. Very very tenuous, difficult circumstances that the military leadership that was on the ground there at the airport um, solving a very complex problem. Uh, they did tremendous work, and I can't say enough about uh, the the Army, Marine, Airmen, and other other folks that were on the ground there working in conjunction with the uh, Air Mobility Command to uh, lift out, you know, tens of thousands of people and then set up, uh, you know, uh, evacuation centers for them in the Middle East and Europe and in the U.S. And, you know, those are all, you know, I, I got to remind folks, the U.S. military is predominantly 20-year-olds. And uh, flying the planes and making the decisions, those are all 20-year-olds led by 30 and sometimes 40 and 50-year-olds. They're doing some really hard things. And uh, they responded very well to that crisis. They observed, oriented, decided, and act, and, uh, you know, made the best out of it as they could, um, similar to their predecessors back in 1975 uh, during Operation Frequent Wind coming out of Saigon. And, you know, frankly, many of us studied that operation, uh, knowing that we would be responsible for similar evacuations in the future, but not at the scale that we predicted for um, Kabul in August of 2021. But, you know, again, you know, personal opinion and all within the context of how to develop leaders to handle crisis. Yeah, Thad, there was a um, lieutenant colonel that uh, was basically the mission commander. Uh, he was from the Air Mobility Command that orchestrated a whole airlift sequence out of uh, Afghanistan. He did an amazing job. And, uh, and that was, you know, being a, you know, how are you going to, who's going to be on the last airplane out of Dodge? That is the key question when you're doing an evacuation and how are you doing it? So this, this young man did a marvelous job of that. Gwen, when you were there at my parents as part of the notification party, were you, consciously aware of your your actions how they would could affect the other people with you or or my my family and were you the, the most senior leader there at their house very much aware of of um the implications primary and secondary effects of you know speaking with you all and you know the um the intent of the um 
notification process is that you know you know we're we write about servant leadership in, in the book, but our, our job at that point is to serve the family uh, of the deceased and uh, and do it in the best possible way we can. And one of the things that I think you can do is a, one a timely notification so that so that the uh, the pe- the right people are making the right notification first, so that it doesn't leak out somehow. Mm-hmm. And you will find out some find out your loved one's dead in a way that's unintended. Uh, that doesn't usually end well. So we wanted to do a timely notification, but then we want to deliver the facts as best we can. And so, uh, you know, the folks who came up, you know, uh, Calvin Markham and I think uh, Sean Gleffy were the ones that were were there, and then other folks flowed in right after that to kind of you know sustain the um, the the relationship with you all as we went through the. Uh, transload, uh, dignified transfer at Dover, and then going into the, to the memorial and funeral services. Uh, it's a grieving process for us as much as it is for the family. Uh, not, not obviously not to the level it is for a loved one like that. But we, um, we love our teammates uh, deeply, and, and we mourn their loss as well. So, uh, taking care of them with excellence is something that we put a lot of value in. When I came to your family's uh, house, at, you know, prior to the funeral, the morning before the memorial service and the funeral, my mission was to explain to you all the details as best I knew them on the circumstances surrounding the death of Mark. And so I was on the phone with the folks back in Afghanistan uh, the hour or two prior to driving out to your house. So I had the latest updates. Um I think we used a graphic, either a map or a picture to kind of talk you through as best we understood the final final actions is Mark, uh, you know, engaged the enemy and then exposed himself to direct enemy fire to save his uh, Army Special Forces teammate, Calvin Harrison. And then what, you know, what all happened after that. So my job was to bring you the specific details. Uh, I was the senior special tactics commander there at the house. Uh, the Air Force Special Operations Command Vice Commander, uh, Major General O.G. Mannon, was with me. And so when we went in there, uh, General Mannon looked at me and said, hey, you've got this, you've got lead on it, I'll support you as needed. So if you remember, uh, Major General Mannon kind of sat in the corner, and then I uh, I led the discussion with you all, talking through uh, the, everything we knew about what happened. And uh, to us, it was important to do that. You know, as, as leaders, we want to present, uh, we want to build trust with you. It's the most important thing. Build trust with the family that, hey, we're being as forthright and honest with what we know, because that's what we would want somebody to do with me. Um, I have two sons serving on active duty right now. Um, and if something happened to either one of those, I would expect the, the same level of care and uh, urgency and um, exactness in what we tried to, you know, we did everything we could to make sure you all knew uh, everything, good and bad. I mean, if there had been a bad piece of that we certainly would have told you because we don't want that to come out after the fact so uh my intent was to be as uh to communicate as effectively as i could the information i had uh build trust and confidence with you all and then as we learn more information we provide that to you uh so you talk about you know crisis event leadership and crisis you know the um when you're back in the u.s and one of your teammates is killed and you're in the process of notifying that family member uh that's a highly emotional event for us uh Mark's death was certainly not the first and it was not the last. And, uh, you know, frankly, I uh, unfortunately had a lot of experience with that. And I, I was pretty refined in my ability to, um, you know, share incredibly tragic news with people that their loved one had been killed uh, in the service of their nation. And uh, I, I got more practice and experience with that than I really wanted to have. But uh, if, if something's got to happen, I want to be there as the senior commander and make sure it's being done well. And uh, if any questions come up, I want to be there to answer them for you. And so that, that's what we did. Yeah, thank you. And I, I just interviewed Calvin, or sorry, William Markham, you know, recently. Charlie and Mike, I heard it. It was a great interview. Did, yeah, and he said it was a no-fail mission. Bruce, I wanted to ask you, regarding leading in a crisis, you had a situation in 91 in the Philippines, Mount Pinatubo. Pinatubo, you'll have to correct me on the pronunciation. Anyway, it it erupted. It really, in some ways, it wasn't a surprise because because it had been predicted. I guess they just didn't maybe know when. But we talk about that situation and how you led during that crisis. You gave some really good detail in this one. Yes, during that crisis, we could see it coming, of course. And I had a wing commander 
at Clark Air Base, uh, Lee Hess, who did a phenomenal job up front of getting uh, all of his family members uh, down to uh, Subic Bay so they could get evacuated back to the United States. What happened, of course, is, yes, Mount Pinatuba blew up. And, and um, uh, as soon as I could find a way over there and get an airplane and take off, I, I went over there, landed at Clark Air Base. There was a, about two and a half feet of ash all over the airfield. And they plowed out about 3,000 feet from either land. So the important part about that is Lee Hess had had things managed quite well. <clears throat> the problem was what was going to happen next. And that what was going to happen next was something that had to be resolved in the international community. So you have all these families on boats heading back to the to the West Coast. So the first thing I had to figure out is how am I going to work with the air staff and get people to meet them and make sure they had enough money and a place to go. And then the other part of this thing is we had to evacuate Clark and we took all of our flying assets up to Kadena in Okinawa. And so now you have a whole uh, bunch of crew members and maintenance people up at Kadena First of all, trying to figure out what's going on with their families. And secondly, what's what's going to happen next? Uh, and this is a long drawn out process of trying to figure it out. But what I thought was important is that I get over there and I look at everybody face to face and try and listen to what they had to say, try and answer their questions as best I could, uh, to try and give them encouragement that, yes, we did have a mechanism in place to deal with her family members when they got to the West Coast. And then just almost as important was to keep the readiness of the, the wing up to speed because we were one of the first organizations to go into the Korean Peninsula if, if a war were to break out there. So I spent time talking with all the air crew and maintenance people, just answering questions as best I could. Then I went out and flew a night mission with them and the MH-53 Pavlo helicopter just to give them a you know a boost of confidence and and what we're there for and what we're trying to get done plus flying a 53 was fun <laughs> one thing I took from that experience of yours is to get on the ground with your people and you got there as quick as possible looked them in the eye you stood in the volcanic ash you saw what had happened and you looked that you saw their faces and yeah, that's, that was a big ordeal because you had uh, so many other organizations and people involved and then your people's families, you have been re recording the audio version of the book. So that'll be out soon, which is a great other option to have. What now that the book is fresh on your mind or, or at least the chapters you read, what was your favorite chapter, Bruce? I think I like the, very first chapter on character because it's a bedrock of of uh, leadership and all the things that go with that you know i really like the one on communications and anyway a whole number of them but i like to start with the whole issue of character first and that's that's what i thought was the most important chapter and why we put it first in the book didn't you share an experience? This has been a little while now. I didn't write this down, but you talked about someone who was recently hired at a, at a company that you, a company that you know, and they had were bragging about something they had done that was just dishonest and they, they lost their job quickly thereafter. Is that, am I remembering correctly? Yeah, you, you're remembering that right. The uh, CEO is uh, Dr. Paul Su, uh, who is an uh, immigrant from Taiwan. He's had, uh, I think, three or four very successful companies. Uh, but they had hired a new engineer, and, and they had searched all over the place for this engineer they needed. And they were standing around over coffee, and this guy was saying how proud he was because he managed to you know, have a boat damaged in a hurricane. He took it back to Sears and said he received a bad product. 
And when Dr. Paul Sue heard this, he said, this guy's not ethical. He's out of here. And so the next day he was gone. Yeah. I mean, if they act that way in their personal life, they're going to act that way in their professional life too. I yeah. Imagine. I mean, they're all, the guy was proud enough of it. They're all sitting around the coffee bar. Yeah. <laughs> he shares his story. I mean, that's, that was crazy. Gwen, what about you? I, I'm not sure if a, earlier you shared your favorite chapter. You already said it, or if you if you did, will you repeat it or tell us what your favorite chapter is? Yeah, I, I like the chapter on delegating and feedback um, because I think it, it, we um, boil down some our experiences on what works and what doesn't work. You know, giving feedback's hard, doing it well is hard. And uh, I think if more people did that, if they sat and looked and looked at the folks that work with them in the, in the eye, you know, on a, on a consistent, regular basis, you know, and leveled expectations, hey, what does that person need me as a leader to do, and what do I need that person to do? Um, we, we'd have a lot less workplace tension, you know, and I think we we could uh, make folks more effective at what they do. One of the statements I make in that chapter is about, uh, I, I used to work for, I had the privilege of working for a guy named Dr. James Roach when he was the secretary of the Air Force. And uh, he told a story of uh, when he was in the private sector, uh, going around and just, you know, how, how do you run a, a corporate a corporate business unit of thousands and thousands of people? And he said, the question he always asked him was, uh, hey, how do I make you better at your job? And I'd sit down with anybody and just go, hey, how do I make you better at your job? And I thought that was a wonderful question to ask people and you as a leader got to be willing to follow up on that. You know, if, if it's, if you can, if you can make a difference, do it. Don't ask a question you don't want the answer to. And, and I think that's a, a great point to equip leaders with. W one of the stories that we tell in the book is about, we use the, uh, the pizza story about <laughs> delegating. And, uh, and I've used that a couple of times and folks seem to, it seems to really resonate with folks. And, and the, the gist of it is that, uh, when I was in, in command of a special tactics group, uh, we had a really great staff, a little headquarters staff that, that was responsible for, uh, you know, equipping and organizing uh, the Air Force's uh, combat controllers and a lot of the pararescuemen that were doing combat operations all over the world. And the staff was principally civilians, a lot of whom were retired military. But I felt that my job was to make sure that I gave them really, really good guidance. Uh, I knew the mission. And if I was good at learning the people, I knew the people's capabilities and then their capacity of how much they can handle. And so uh, instead of having the staff meeting at nine o'clock, I had it like at 11 and said, hey, I'm going to bring lunch. And so I got this big old pizza and I brought it in and I kind of, you know, use it as an object lesson that, hey, my job is to cut this pizza into the right size pieces so you can you can eat the right size piece every day. And um so if I cut the piece wrong and it's either too small or too big, you know, and, and you're not able to eat it all, that represents mission that's not getting done. At the end of the day, I'm responsible for that entire piece of, for the entire pizza to be eaten. And if I cut it up correctly by delegating effectively, you know, the whole pizza gets eaten and everybody does what they're trained to do at the level they're trained to do it. And, uh, but hey, if you don't do your job, and you don't eat your piece of pizza, at the end of the day, somebody else has got to eat it for you. Because tomorrow, a whole new pizza is coming, and we got to cut it up again. But there's men and women downrange whose lives are counting on us to get this pizza eaten every day. And, and I, you know, hey, I, I bought pizza for everybody, but that was kind of cool, and I enjoyed the pizza. And so, but I, I used the object lesson, and, and it was some um, nonprofit organizations I've, I've been um, blessed to lead. I did the same thing. I'd come in with a pizza and cut it up and say, hey, look, if I'm not giving you the right size pizza, piece of pizza, you need to come back and let me know. If it's too much, I need to know. If it's not enough, let me know and I'll, I'll cut more up for you next time. But but I thought that was a really good object lesson and just the responsibility of the leader and delegating effectively. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we get into it, the, the other piece of that is just the ability to get feedback. Um, you learn to delegate effectively by doing getting a lot of reps in. You got to do a whole lot of it and then get feedback from your people on, hey, did I set conditions for you to be successful? Did I explain things clearly on what I wanted you to do? You know, did, did you have the resources you needed to get it done? But if that feedback loop doesn't exist, you know, you're not going to get better as a leader at delegating things. And a lot of folks just frankly don't want to delegate. They'd rather just do it all themselves. 
you know, hey, it's too hard to delegate. So I'll just do it myself and I'll just work myself into the ground. And then, you know, personally, they fail. Their, their work-life balance is all out of whack. And then eventually there's so much work, they're never going to do it all. And then the whole thing's going to fall apart. So I think the ability for uh, folks who've got some reps in leading, you know, the next the next challenge is this delegation thing in, in the feedback piece. And what happened is we were writing the book. We had it all in the communications chapter. And we realized it was a, an important thing that we needed to really spend a whole chapter on. And uh, and I uh, I had a chance to read that chapter today when, when we were recording our Audible book. And, and I think we got that one pretty good. Um, I think they're all really good. But like Bruce says, the character thing is key. You know, you talked about getting thrown into a position when we first started the podcast. And I would go back and say, hey, your boss probably picked you to do it uh, because of your character. Like he goes, hey, look, you know, he's got the right attitude. He's got the right character. He'll figure it out. And, and I think that's how we make a lot of decisions as senior leaders is that, hey, I'm willing to, you know, be a judge of character and a judge of attitude. And um, if I get those correctly and I put I, I cut the pizza right I'm going to base it on character and attitude first. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I bet that person's going to figure out the technical skills they need to learn to be successful. Mm-hmm. And I think Bruce and I, Bruce would agree with me in most cases, that's the best way to, to pick people to do hard things. Well, you were very lucky. It was pineapple pizza. You're lucky you didn't have to eat the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a love hate relationship there. I think with the pineapple pizza. I love chicken and pineapple, man. That's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of those that like right. divides people. <laughs> um, so in closing, Bruce, what what would you like? Anything else you want to say about the book, about the process? Uh, you know, for because we I want people. I'll have a link in the show notes. We definitely want people to buy it and read it. So, what would you like to say? Let me back up for just a minute. Gwen and I talked about where we got our leadership training, and he had a. He came in the time in the Air Force where they actually had leadership training, and I, I had none. I got my real leadership training from a guy who was kind of controversial, and I think you had him too, Ronnie Heifus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I learned more about leadership in that two-month class with him than I learned anywhere else. Now, I asked your question again. I got all out of whack here. I got a short memory. <laughs> well, just anything in closing, Bruce, that you want to say about the book or the process? Yeah. Talk uh, about the study guide? Yeah, we got a, got a new public uh, study guide coming out here in a couple of weeks. So, yeah, that'd be a good thing. In fact, we're going to do more of these podcasts. We'll just take you through the study guide. They're great questions. Great. And, I mean, if you want me to do it, I'll link it as, a down, as downloadable. I don't know if you want that, but. So, not available yet. Not yet. Yeah. I'll tell you what, Gwen and I kind of came together on this from, like I mentioned earlier, about putting together an earlier book. Uh, but we think an awful lot alike when it concerns leadership. Uh, he's had some, I'll just say, some pretty traumatic times in his career where he's had to exercise leadership. Not so much with me because I, at the time, I had good subordinate commanders that would take the responsibility and get done with it. And I think that's important. I was always there to support them. And I'd be available, at, you know, when there was an aircraft accident someplace in my command, the uh, squadron commander and the wing commander would have those responsibilities, but I'd make myself available to console with families or whatever, at least it's important that they know that the top leadership is uh, empathetic, but we just saw things a lot alike when we laid out this earlier book and we just said, let's write another book. So we did. And uh, I think it turned out pretty well. Yeah. Gwen, what about you? Yeah. So, um, you know, th- thanks for posting the, you know, the books available on Amazon. Um, lead to serve and serve to lead leading well in turbulent times with both both our names on it and um, if folks like it leave a review for us that's always helpful you know in yeah. the whole world of uh, you know print on demand stuff that's uh, that's what drives it I guess but uh, we just we just hope it serves as a, as a blessing to people that uh, may feel unequipped for the challenge that they found themselves in and this is uh, folks ask us like hey what's a good leadership book if I, if I end up in charge of something and don't really don't, don't know what to do and 
we didn't have a great, you know, singular book to point them to. So we figured, like, oh, heck, we'll just write our own, you know, and <laughs> it's uh, it's 10 chapters. The last chapter is um, kind of a summary and, and, and an encouragement to folks to get after it as leaders. And, uh, you know, to us, it's, um, you know, leadership is a service. That's how you, you serve your fellow human being and by doing it well. And so we wanted to kind of give some tools and some suggestions on how to how to maybe consider it. But the, the bottom line comes down to, hey, you know, the, the folks that work, you know, we, we like to say for us, but the folks that work with us, frankly, you got to realize they're more important than you are. And once you come to that conclusion, hey, the people that I wake up every day to equip and encourage and inspire, they're more important than I am. And, and I got to lean into this as hard as I can uh, to help make their lives better. And if I do that, things tend to work well in the organization. And so the book kind of lays out how you do that. And, and that's what we hope to do. And I hope the folks can, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of folks listening to this are, are great proven leaders who could write their own books, but uh, we hope folks uh, are, are blessed by what we put in there and it helps them do better. And it influences all the folks they touch uh, in their workplace or in their nonprofit or, you know, the ministry or whatever they're involved in. Cause you know, we talk about, you know, Hey, there's positional informal and circumstantial leadership and you, you kind of do all three all the time. I mean, you're always influencing people, whether you're in a, position, a formal position of leadership or not. So, you know, we hope this helps somebody, um, you know, just live their life better and make life better for others and make the organization more effective. So um, if anybody's interested in learning more, you know how to get hold of us or they can reach out to us through our, our website. It's uh, www.leadtoservebook.com. Uh, you can contact us through the website and it's got some more information about us and about our book. So Hey, we're honored to be with you, Thad. Anytime we can be associated with the Forrester family, it's always great. And we really appreciate you, one, reading the book and then thinking enough of it to uh, invite us on your podcast. Yeah, thanks a lot, Thad, for having us as your You're, guest. It's yeah. been a really great time together. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, well, thank you. It's, it's my honor. And it, the time goes by too fast, of course, because there's plenty more that I wanted to cover. You know, for those watching, there here's the book. It's it, It's like a... It's a great reference book too, because you know this is. I don't even know if you have a hardcover, do you? Yeah, yeah. You do? Oh, you do. Okay. Well, I've got the paperback, and you should see it. It's, it's marked up, you know, all over. A lot of notes, a lot of underlines, and so this is this this could be one that easily. Oh, there's a hardcover. Okay. Yeah. This and this is a super hardcover edition. You can't. I guess you can get it on Amazon, but we got a number of them uh, that we sell uh, retail. Thirty-three ninety-five a piece. Can anyone get one uh, signed? Have y'all figured out how to make that happen? Yeah, shoot us a note yeah. through our website. Okay, it, it'll it'll link to us. Yeah. Um, or if you got our, you know, um, the the best way you go to the website, you fill out a thing, it'll it'll come to us. So we're, okay. we're trying not to advertise our emails, but it's it's in there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that'd be great. We'd love to get it. The the soft copper is on Amazon for nineteen something, mm -hmm. and then there's a printed hardcover edition. But there's the you know, the author's edition that we can get you with the signature on it if anybody feels feels led to it. But yeah, we hope folks use it as a resource. Um, we wrote it to be kind of a book you keep on the shelf and go back to hopefully to, you know, they're, they're, we try to be very succinct in our in our thoughts on that. Oh, so yeah. Hopefully folks will use that. Hey, I, I thought of myself the whole time through that book. And I've always been a big kind of self-help leadership book kind of guy, at least for the past 25 years. I know I've read I've read many of them. So thank you all very much. It's full of wisdom and I highly recommend it. I'll have links to everything and, and hopefully people will not only read it, but they will leave a review. <laughs>